Welcome to the first Forecast Direct podcast of 2022. And uh, we are really starting off well with our uh, guest for today's podcast, Professor Emily Oster of Brown University. Uh, so let me just do a quick introduction, but welcome to UCLA, Emily. Thank you. Uh, so Emily is uh, uh, at Brown University. She's executive director of the COVID-19 School Data Hub, Royce Family Professor of Teaching Excellence and Professor of Economics. Uh, she was educated both undergraduate and graduate uh, at Harvard University and uh, has spent time at University of Chicago Booth School of Business before moving to Brown University. And uh, so the millennials and Gen Ys who are watching this uh, and are contemplating or actively involved in uh, parenthood uh, know Emily well because of the trilogy of um, uh, expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm, all about uh, using data to make good decisions in parenting, uh, something that certainly when I was raising children was not around. Uh, if you haven't uh, looked at these, I highly recommend them. Even if like me, you're a boomer and you're done with child raising, you'll see lots of things in there that you'll recognize and and will make you smile and go, oh yes, I understand that now. Uh, so uh, let's just start by uh, talking about that. So Emily, your fields of specialization are healthcare economics or health economics and uh, statistical methodology in research. Uh, how did you move to uh, you know, working on issues of parenting, uh, first of all, and secondly, translating uh, what we do as economists in a way that, uh, that this next generation of millennials and Zs uh, can easily understand and apply. So, I, you know, I would say I really started on this, uh, this part of my career when I got pregnant. So uh, this was, um, you know, Expecting Better in particular, which is the first book about pregnancy, was really driven by my own experiences and um, kind of by the, by the experience of being an, an economist who was pregnant. And, uh, and I entered that, uh, that phase of life sort of thinking that I would apply a lot of the same tools that I applied to in my job. Uh, and then I would think use data to think about the decisions. And, and I found a sort of landscape of decision-making in pregnancy that was quite different and maybe sometimes less data-friendly than I had hoped that it would, that it would be. And so, um, so my, my sort of beginning there was to say, okay, well, I need to collect some of this data and do some of this analysis to make the right decisions from, from my own pregnancy. And then it sort of moved into writing about it for, for a broader audience. Um, I mean, you know, we can talk more about that transition, but I think the, the big thing for me is I've always been quite interested in the ways that we translate the things that we find in the academy, the sort of research we do into, uh, into sort of communicating it out to a broader audience. That has always been something that I like to do that I think that I have, you know, particular take on it that sometimes works. Um, and so I was, I, I sort of remember kind of doing this research for myself and then thinking about, okay, actually, could write about this for for someone else, and that was the origin, at least, of the first book. And and it it 
uh, I wouldn't say it sometimes works. It, it definitely works. And, and I think is, uh, you know, an important um, contribution that we as economists can make is uh, taking what we do in econ speak and translating it to uh, something that others uh, really can, can understand. Uh, but, you know, economics is all about the allocation of scarce resources. And anyone who's raised children knows that's all about the allocation of scarce resources. So why do you think it is that our profession has really ignored this part of, of uh, economics for so long? I mean, I think, you know, if you sort of go back there, there is a fair amount of what we call, you know, household economics, right? So sort of studying the way that people um, allocate their labor time typically. Um, and so, you know, I think that that, um, that kind of overlaps with parenting, right? Even if you think about like Gary Becker's original, like the sort of quantity quality trade-off, which right. when you explain it to a non-economist, they're like, what, like, what do you mean? You know, I want to like, well, you know, we have this idea, but that's a very powerful set of models. The idea that, um, you know, that you would sort of have fewer children and want to invest more in them. And I think that that idea is like fundamentally rooted in the, in the observation that your time is finite and your resources are finite. And you, you know, if you have fewer kids, you can kind of share the resources across more of them. In terms of sort of moving from the kind of generic, like how are we describing the way that the world is operating in the demographic transition into the question of, you know, how can we use economics to help people organize their their parenting better you know like i i think that that although i personally feel there are many uh many tools from economics that are that are useful there i think that um it's a it's been a little bit of a weirder transition in part because uh because it's kind of gendered right and economics has been like a pretty male dominated uh male dominated field and i think that there is sometimes a feeling of like well that's like late you know that's like for ladies um and it is only more recently that that i think has become more kind of more acceptable Right. I mean, I think in uh, you, you brought up uh, Gary Becker's work, and in a, in a lot of that, it was really a comparison between uh, market activity and non-market activity, as opposed to looking at non-market activity, uh, the household and how that operates. Uh, and and so that's an area that uh, you're really pushing us into and, and where I think the field belongs. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been, there has definitely been more, there is more work in this space now within, you know, I don't think of the stuff that I'm doing as really in the academic space, but I think there is more work within the academic space about kind of how we understand the trade-offs people make, how we model, you know, the relationship between childbearing and, and you know, labor market choices and um, how those things interact. So I think there's, I think there's definitely a push in that direction. Right, so let's turn to your more academic research. Uh, and um, you've done a lot of work in the area of sampling and how, you know appropriate methodology for analysis, and uh, in particular some uh, recent papers on observed and un unobserved variables and how they bias the results and how they interpret the results. And I noticed in the family firm you use that in the uh, in the example about when does one start their child in school at what age, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that research and how that informs us about how we make our decisions uh, and how we interpret data. 
Yeah, so I think that most of my, or like a, a huge share of my recent academic work at least has been really around the idea of kind of what do we learn from observational data and how do we separate causality, um, you know, and, and correlation in some of these, these spaces. And I have to say, actually, there's a huge um, feedback between the, the kind of academic work and the non-academic work here for me, because I, prior to writing Expecting Better, my work was much more in the sort of health care health space. Uh, and my interest in talking about the statistical methods we use was actually like pretty influenced by the the work that I was doing, the papers that I was reading in the service of uh, of writing about this public health literature and you know the context of of uh, of pregnancy. So there's just a, a lot of of these um, examples where you where you sort of dive in and it's like, boy, we're seeing a lot of correlation, but it's not obvious we're learning about causality. So, like a good example is and we look at data on breastfeeding. You can see like, is breastfeeding linked to child IQ? Well, that correlation is really strong. So it is definitely the case that being breastfed is linked with, is correlated with having a higher IQ score on later tests. But when you look at what else is going on in the data, what you find is that the, the women who breastfeed are better educated. They, they themselves perform higher on, you know, perform better on IQ tests. They tend to be richer. They tend, they're more likely to be married. There's all kinds of uh, variables that, that correlate with breastfeeding that also independently we know to be associated with child achievement. So, you know, some of my, <coughs> sorry, so that means that it's, it's fairly important uh, that you adjust for those and that you try to sort of think carefully about holding those constant. Some of my work is really just about how hard that is to do. And how in practice, um, it's, it's very difficult to be confident that we are holding constant all of the things that are different across people because it's one thing to control for someone's education or income, but it's another thing to be able to say, well, that's all the things that are different about them. And so in some of this statistical work, I talk about the issue of observables, which are the things you can see that might be impacting your, your estimates and unobservables, which are the things that you can't see uh, that might be impacting your estimates. And I, I talk about how you can, you know, how researchers can make assumptions about the relationships between those things that would allow them uh, to maybe make some additional progress with the recognition that just in a lot of these settings, it's really, really, uh, it's really, really hard to get around the sort of inherent problem of unobservable bias. Yeah, I mean, that's really important because, uh, you know, in the discussion of the application of our research to policy, and, and, and not just in the kind of the frame that, that you work in, but more generally thinking about causality, but also thinking about these unobservables, uh, you know, will really help us frame better policy. I, I mean, I agree. I think we're, we're often trying to sort of take our, take our estimates and convert them to something where we're making either policy pronouncements or behavioral pronouncements or some, or some other thing. When we're doing that, it really is pretty important to be clear on the on the causality because the policies that we're making are about changing the policy and un, and that's only going to work to change the outcomes under the assumption that the policy and the outcomes are somehow uh, are somehow causally linked if in fact the reality is they're just correlated there's no causality then changes to that policy really aren't going to matter right so let's turn to uh, some of your other research uh, that uh, has ended up in the public uh, discourse uh, that of schools. So you did uh, wrote one paper, and I think it was in uh, Nature Health, uh, and that was on uh, the transmission of 
of disease, in particular COVID, uh, by school children in schools that were open. Uh, and then you have a, a, another one on the uh, impact of school closures. But let's go to the first one. And can you tell us what you found? And I, I think the results are kind of surprising and not what uh, not only people expect, but not but also not what they're saying. Yeah, so I mean, I think to, to sort of to, to kind of step back, I've been working on this issue of schools and COVID really since, you know, almost the almost since the beginning, not quite, but almost since the beginning of the pandemic. And I think it's worth kind of thinking about why we ended up in the place that we did on this on this topic. So, you know, in March of 2020, virtually all schools in um, in the entire world, with the exception of Sweden, kind of closed for in-person learning. And I think there were a lot of good reasons for that. Um, you know, one was that we just kind of had no idea what was going on. Uh, and the other is that, you know, school closures are commonly thought to be a pretty important or a potentially important mitigation factor in, for example, influenza, which is a disease that shows up uh, a lot in kids and where we think that, you know, schools may be kind of centers of, of some spread. So schools closed, but then actually, you know, as we kind of moved into the summer of, of 2020, uh, many European countries in particular sort of started to reopen their schools, recognizing that one of the um, in some ways, great gifts of, of COVID, even though in many ways it's just pretty much the worst, is it actually doesn't affect kids um, in terms of serious illness the way it does adults. And so in light of that, many places in Europe kind of opened their schools in the, uh, in the summer of, of 2020. Uh, and then, you know, we came into the kind of fall of 2020 in the U.S., there's a fair amount of variation. So some schools were open, some schools were not open. It tended to line up on sort of political lines. Um, so I started working on this uh, in term, on the data collection side. So I started working with a bunch of different partners trying to collect different pieces of data, data about COVID cases in schools, data about which schools were open. Uh, and one of the pieces of that um, is that sort of came out was a question, was around the question of whether schools were sources of spread. So whether there was a lot of spread in schools, which we could see you know, pretty clearly as of the fall of 2020 did not seem to be actually going on. Uh, and then the other, the other piece was, okay, well, are our schools a source of spread to the community? Are they, is opening schools spreading COVID in the community? And what we find in that paper in Nature Medicine, uh, using a nationwide sample of information on when schools were open and not open, um, and information on community case rates, we're able to see that in fact, opening schools with appropriate mitigation at the time uh, did not seem to, to drive increases in, in case rates. So that was, I think, an encouraging, I mean, I think it is in line with much of what we are seeing or virtually all of what we're seeing, which is that schools don't seem to be a significant source of COVID risk. And, and then uh, your other recent paper was on uh, differentials in learning. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that as well. Yeah, so then as we kind of move through the end of last year, our team pivoted a little bit to... Um, trying to understand some of the consequences of the school closure. So if you look, um, if you look at sort of the, the map of kind of what happened across the, the US in schooling over, the, uh, over the, the, that sort of pandemic, first pandemic school year, um, you see a huge amount of variation in opening. Um, and the data that was, that was sort of collected on that was not great. So we actually spent a lot of last summer working with individual states to kind of pull data together. But you know, when you look at it, you see, for example, a lot of places in California were closed virtually the whole year, uh, whereas a lot of places, say, you know, in Wyoming would pretty much open every day, regular in-person school for the entire school year. So just a huge amount of, of variation across the country. 
We merge that information together with information on test scores on sort of state standardized tests at the end of the school year. And we look at uh, the relationship between whether the school was open for in-person learning and the test scores at the end of the year, in particular the change from the last pre-pandemic year. And what we observe there is that in general, there are fairly significant losses in, uh, in test scores, very significant declines in test scores from 2019 to 2021. But those declines are much larger in districts that were fully remote than districts that had in-person learning. So it looks like in general, the pandemic is decreasing test scores, particularly in math, but that's even more so true in districts that did not have uh, in-person learning access. And, and uh, that, you know, that was the reason why Mayor de Blasio said, uh, regardless of disease transmission, I guess he didn't read your earlier paper, uh, New York City schools are staying open, even though Detroit and Milwaukee and Chicago did close their schools up uh, for a few weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think Mayor Adams, um, so one of his sort of early pushes here has, you know, he just came into office, like I think he's mm -hmm. he pushed pretty hard for um, for schools to stay open. And I think the, you know, I think the, the reason for that is, is the sort of dual of these two factors that on the one hand, you know, we aren't seeing schools as a source of significant spread. On the other hand, we are seeing very large losses, not just for learning, but for learning, for mental health, for all kinds of other things. People are seeing sort of disruptions in, in school being bad for, um, bad for students. I think it's also worth noting that, um, that the, the students whose lives have been most disrupted by this do tend to be students who are low income, uh, larger districts with larger populations of students of color. In our research on the losses here, we see not only are students in, in those districts less likely to have access to in-person schooling, but the losses associated with not having in-person schooling, the kind of downsides of virtual learning are larger for those groups. So it's a sort of like double hit on, um, on kids with fewer resources uh, that they are both less likely to get to go to school and it's harder for them if they are not getting to go to school. So I think that's, that's, really, pushing, um, that's really pushing a lot of policymakers in this direction of kind of schools really need to stay open. So I'm interested in whether or not age matters. Uh, I know you have a recent editorial criticizing uh, universities that have shut down, including my own. Uh, I'm, I'm here on campus uh, today, but there are not many students around. Yeah. Some are in the dorm. Uh, so, so does age matter or is this sort of uh, ubiquitous across age groups? So I think that, that you know, in, when we looked in the fall of 2020, uh, which was pre-vaccine, uh, there was actually quite a big difference between universities and virtually all K-12. So there was just way more spread in universities. So we saw, you know, if you kind of look at the map from some of those early months of, of fall of 2020, you can like, you can like see like Penn State on the map in, in, the, in the case rates, you know, because you can just see there's, and, and again, it's a, it's a low risk population, but we were seeing very high case rates. We didn't see that in school. So it does look like there's sort of something different about universities in, in that sort of fall of 2020 period. Um, it, you know, in the, in the sort of current moment, this is what I was, I was writing about in that, in that op-ed, uh, most universities, yours being one of them, mine as well, have uh, pretty strong vaccine mandates for students. They have been, you know, vaccines have been widely available for a long time for community members. Um, so I think that changes the landscape quite a lot. Um, and I, you know, I think part of there, there are losses to college students from not being in person. 
just like there are losses to kids in the K-12 space from not being, from not being in person. And I think in, in this space with the kind of availability of vaccines, there's just a lot of reason to keep things open. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of difference in my teaching between teaching over Zoom and, and teaching in person. We uh, came back in the fall and taught in person. Um, I'd like to turn to another article of yours uh, with a fascinating title. Uh, does, does disease cause, uh, cause vaccination? And, uh, and, and just as kind of an introduction, what I found interesting, so you're looking at whooping cough and across states and, um, uh, and, and incidences of whooping cough, and that doesn't change the probability of getting it, right? But did end up changing vaccination rates. And one thing that I find fascinating, so California was one of the low vaccination states because we have pockets of, yeah. of uh, folks who are opposed to vaccination uh, and one of the high incidence rates. Uh, and it was surprising kind of your results and do those you know, kind of reflect on uh, whether or not COVID is going to increase vaccination rates? I mean, how do, how do we interpret this? Yeah, so, so what we find in that paper um, is that, you know, we're kind of looking for something which is actually motivated, actually was motivated by a story out of California. So there was a, a period in which there was a small, a small, I don't know, like a, a medium-sized measles outbreak at Disneyland. And one of the things that sort of a bunch of people said in reaction to that was you sort of had these newspaper articles where people were like, oh, now I'm getting my kid vaccinated. And I, I sort of heard that as like, oh, I thought measles was imaginary. Like I didn't realize people got that. But now that I realize it's a real disease, I'm going to get my kid vaccinated. And so we wanted to kind of see whether that showed up in a more systematic way um, in, in whooping cough, where actually it's more comp, like there are, more, there are almost always cases in the frequently cases in, in given years. And so we look at the county, kind of the county uh, year level to see whether people seem to be sort of pushed into vaccination um, by the presence of cases in their, um, presence of cases in their county. In the, sort of that, whether it's, it's something we, it's not something that I can exactly like tease out of the data why you would see this relationship, which you do see in the data, but, but is it my sort of imagined idea for it was that, um, that kind of this is because people realize that like whooping cough is a real thing and they hear that you know their doctor says well did you know we like have a baby in the ICU with whooping cough right now like don't you want to have your kid vaccinated um that seems like it's kind of disproven or so, somehow the COVID case the COVID situation must be more complicated um because everybody has COVID uh or at least everybody knows that it is something people are are exposed to and so if you thought that all that was required to encourage people to vaccinate was the realization that this is like a real, you know, disease threat, um, you might have thought that they would already all be doing it. So there's clearly a bunch of other stuff going on in the case of, of COVID. I will say as sort of a, an addendum to the, um, to the, to the pertussis stuff and uh, thinking about California in specific. So California, right, has quite low vaccination rates. And at some point after this measles outbreak, they changed the rules for school vaccine uh, requirements. So it used to be pretty much if you just kind of said you didn't feel like it, you could uh, not vaccinate your kid. And they there was a, a bill passed that made it really difficult not to vaccinate your kid. It like it, it's like way more onerous now. 
And that has huge impacts on vaccine rates, like enormously bigger than anything we saw in, in our, our paper or people have seen in other interventions where they try to encourage people. So it seems like the kind of mandate part of this is probably pretty, probably pretty important, even in these kind of pretty resistant areas. So the mandate would then be a substitute for a lack of information, right? On the ind individual level, it's costly to get the information, but the state public health authorities, maybe not so much. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you sort of substitute, it's just, it's a different approach, right? There's the kind of like help people, like I think as economists, we would often, we would like it to be the case that we can tell people, here's the truth, here's all the information here, like, and then let them make the right decision for themselves. In these cases where there's like some, you know, compelling externality argument, um, it looks like just mandating is more effective. But, but you don't expect the uh, <coughs> presence of Omicron to really change dramatically the uh, vaccination rates because you don't have that information or demonstration effect that you yeah. found in the paper or... I think there's some of that. So I will say like I was sort of in the, like a, a week or two ago, I was volunteering at a pediatric vaccination clinic. And there was definitely like, a, I mean, this is many, this is months after first vaccines were available. There was definitely like a lot of people showing up for their first dose, uh, you know, sort of like seemingly somewhat on a whim, um, suggesting to me that something about the fact that like everyone in Rhode Island had COVID was sort of motivating that. Um, on the flip side, there's clearly a fair amount of resistance in certain parts of the of the country to vaccines. And I, I doubt we're going to get, you know, I doubt there will be high vaccination rates in those places. There are also places which are unlikely to mandate for kids. So that brings us to the close of our time. But, um, you know, your work is incredibly fascinating and it brings uh, data to decision making, which is uh, is important in this day of alternative facts. Alternative facts, yes. And, I like to be uh, only just the regular facts. Yeah, regular facts <laughs> and and uh, careful analysis and thinking about the difference between correlation and causality. Uh, so Emily, appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And uh, for our audience, uh, go look at Emily's trilogy. And if not for you, for your children who are thinking about uh, having children, uh, it's fascinating, it's amusing, but it's also very factual. And, uh, and I have to say that I thoroughly enjoyed it. And my millennial daughter turned me on to, to, uh, to that trilogy. Uh, so thank you well, for being with us today here at UCLA. And so this concludes the first of our 2022 UCLA Anderson Forecast, Forecast Direct podcasts.